0: Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcast on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. Lawrence was founded in 1845 until 1880, the dominant element in the textile factories were Native Americans, English, Irish, Scottish, French, and Canadians, and many of them were skilled workers. With the technological advances of the 1980s, the skilled personnel were rapidly displaced and Italians, Greeks, Portuguese, Russians, Poles, Lithuanians, Syrians, and Armenians took their places. By 1912, the newcomers of Lawrence, within a one-mile radius of the mill district, 25 different nationalities lived, speaking half a hundred different languages. The largest ethnic group in the city was Italians. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics made a study of the weekly payroll reports from seven mills in Lawrence about seven weeks before the strike. It covered 21,922 workers, not including overseers and clerks. About two hundred and thirteen of the total number in the mills on the eve of the strike, the average rate per hour of sixteen thousand five hundred and seventy eight operatives skilled and unskilled in the four woolen and worsted mills were sixteen cents, and the average amount earned for the week under study was eight dollars and seventy five cents These wages included premiums on bonuses but 598 of the operatives in the woolen mills earned less than $0.15 an hour, and 14% of those in the cotton mills made less than $0.12. Almost a third, 33.2% of both woolen and cotton operatives received less than $7 a week. The study reports were based on earnings during a week when the mills were running full time but none of the mills worked full-time. Throughout the year, although the Bureau of Labor Statistics declared that it could not ascertain the amount of unemployment, it conceded that there was a serious curtailment of earnings due to lost time and concluded that the $8.75 and $8.78 average wages for the week under study were far too high for an annual average. The Lawrence textile industry was a family industry, but this pleasant-sounding had a meaning for the workers. To keep the family alive, husbands, wives, and children worked in the mills. Even the wives that stayed at home to care for her children, she was compelled to contribute to the family's income by taking care of a neighbor's children for money. By doing another family's washing for a fee or by taking in boarders or lodgers. Lodgers or boarders were an economic necessity of the majority of the immigrant households. They usually paid $3 350 per month for lodging and the use of the kitchen stove. Of a 123 Italian family study, 77 had boarders or lodgers, and in 34 of these 77 households, the wife of the head of the household also worked in the mills. On the eve of the strike in 1912, half the children in Lawrence between the ages of 14 and 18 were employed in the mills, and 11.5% of the textile workers were boys and girls under 18. Lawrence had two dubious distinctions. It was one of the most congested cities of the nation, with 33,700 people dwelling in less than one thirteenth of the city's area. The slum, where nearly all the mill workers lived, and the infant mortality rate was one of the highest of all the industrial cities of the nation. In 1910, of the 1,524 deaths in Lawrence, 711 or 46.6 percent were of children under six years old. Indeed, in that year, the death toll in Lawrence was exceeded, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, by only six cities out of 40 selected. Of the six, three others, Lowell, Fall River, and New Bedford were also textile centers. A considerable number of boys and girls died within the first two or three years after beginning work. A medical examiner staying health conditions in lawrence mills wrote thirty-six out of every hundred of all men and women who work in the mill die before or by the time they are twenty-eight years of age the textile workers could not afford the wool suit or cotton dresses they made and the cold was caused for many of the deaths These were the conditions that led the great upheaval of New England and other textile workers in 1912 through 1913, for conditions were no better in other textile centers. But the spark that set off the explosion was a cut in wages for all workers following the passage of the 54-hour law for women and for children under 18 years of age. The law adopted by the state legislature in 1911 as a result of pressure from organized labor in Massachusetts was scheduled to go into effect on January 1, 1912, but the companies refused to pay the same wages for the shorter week as for the previous 56-hour week, and since they applied the new law to all workers, male and female, it meant a reduction in pay for the workers. The corporation scoffed at the idea that the workers separated into numerous crafts and twenty-five nationalities, speaking at least forty-five different languages with fewer than 2,500 union members among the 30,000 mill workers, and even these divided between the United Textile Workers of America AFL and Local 20 IWW could even consider a general strike, much less stage one. The Italian, Polish, and Lithuanian workers met on January 10th and 11th and voted to strike if their pay enveloped on January 12th showed any reduction. On the next afternoon, when it was clear that the mill owners had cut the wages, the general walkout began at the Everett Cotton Mill. The weavers, nearly all of them Polish women, stopped their looms. Officials attempted to explain the reduction in pay, but the women replied, not enough money, and left the mill when the Italian workers in the Washington mill opened their pay envelopes. They found that their weekly earnings had been reduced by an amount equivalent to two hours' work, or, as the workers put it, by four loaves of bread the wages of these men and women were already at the starvation point suddenly all the years of suffering from lack of food miserable housing and poor clothing poor health and the tyranny of the foreman's came to a head and erupted to an outburst of rage against the machines the symbols of the boss's repression the workers ran from room to room stopping the motors cutting the belts tearing the cloth breaking the electric lights and dragging the other operatives from the looms Within half an hour, the work at the mill came to a stop. The unorganized strikers, many of them women, closed down mill after mill, waving American and Italian flags and shouting, better to starve fighting than to starve working, which was soon to become the battle cry of the general strike. Repulsed by the police at several mills, they finally halted their attacks, but by Saturday night, January 13th, an estimated 20,000 textile workers had left their machines. By Monday night, January 15th, Lawrence was an armed camp. Police and militia guarded the mills throughout the night. The Battle of Lawrence, one of the epic struggles between capital and labor in American history, was on. Since the AFL United Textile Workers would have nothing to do with the unskilled immigrant workers in Lawrence, the strikers called the IWW for help, and the IWW came on feet of lightning. Joseph Echter, accompanied Arturo Giovanni, editor of the proletariat and secretary of the Italian Socialist Federation, came immediately, and on January 13th, actor's leadership the spontaneous outburst quickly gave way to a methodical strike organization rarely paralleled in the history of the american labor movement on january 15th pickets turned out in mass before each of the mills this was the beginning of a daily practice that continued until the end of the strike never before had there been picketing on the scale employed in lawrence to get around the prohibition by city authorities against gathering in front of the mills the strike committee representing each of the different nationalities developed the ingenious strategy of the moving picket line day after day for twenty four hours a day long lines of pickets moved in an endless chain around the mill district to discourage strike breakers the women strikers themselves and wives of male strikers trod the frozen streets alongside the men and often occupied the front ranks in demonstrations and parades Expectant mothers and women with babies in their arms marched with the others, carrying signs reading, We want bread and roses too. The women pickets were very active today, and very few scabs entered the mills, read a fairly typical report from Lawrence. Most reporters agreed that women proved themselves fiercer and more courageous than the men. On Monday evening, January 29, Anna La Pisa, a 34-year-old Italian woman, was on her way to visit friends and passed through a gathering of about a thousand strikers she was shot through the heart and killed even though nineteen witnesses testified that they had seen a soldier murder lapiza two men were arrested indicted for murder and imprisoned and removed from the strike leadership william big bill haywood and elizabeth Gurley flynn took over the leadership the district attorney declared in court that the strike committee was made up of cowards who sent their women into the picket line he considered this grossly unfair since one policeman can handle ten men well it takes ten policemen to handle one woman the afl too accused the iww of putting women on the front line Flynn responded, the IWW has been accused of putting the women in the front. The truth is, the IWW does not keep them in the back and they go to the front. As the police became more brutal, women strikers responded with spontaneous street demonstrations. Fred Beale, then a young striker, described on one occasion, one day after the militia was called, thousands of us strikers marched to Union Street again. In the front ranks, a girl carried a large American flag. When we arrived at the junction of Canal and Union Streets, we were met by a formidable line of militia boys with rifles attached to bayonets. They would not let us proceed. An officer on horseback gave orders, Point arms, disperse the crowd, whereupon the militia boys between the ages of 17 to 20, guns leveled waist high, moved toward the crowd. Their bayonets glistened in the sunlight on and on they moved the strikers in front could not move because of the pressing of the crowd behind them it looked as if the murder of anna lapiza would be multiplied many times and then the girl with the american flag stepped forward with a quick motion she wrapped the stars and stripes around her body and defied the militia to make holes in old glory the officer on horseback permitted us to proceed and there was no further trouble three women were elected to the strike committee Rosa Cordella, Josephine Liss, and Annie Welsenbach. Welsenbach, a highly skilled worker, did invisible reweaving, repairing tiny holes in cloth. Her husband was also a skilled worker, and as Lawrence workers went, family was relatively well off. Annie told a reporter, I have been getting madder and madder for years at the way they talk to these poor Italians and Lithuanians. She was instrumental in winning the support of the skilled workers for the strike. Man intimidated by women pickets. Women fined $20 for assaulting an officer. Jeannie Radster-Lowitz convicted of intimidating man. Annie Rogers arrested for molesting soldiers. Annie Walzenbach and her two sisters routed from bed and dragged down to the police headquarters for intimidation. These were typical headlines in the Lawrence Evening Tribune during the strike. Even the Tribune, which ordinarily blinded the strikers, was moved to protest when the Lawrence police were issued orders to strike women on the arms and breasts and men on the head. Women were able to vote on all strike decisions. Rosa Cordella, Josephine Lis, Carrie Hansen, and Mary Bateman were cited for their bravery and practical helpfulness but it was Elizabeth Gurley Flynn who came to symbolize the leadership that women could exercise. Labor reporter Mary Hayton Worse wrote, When Elizabeth Gurley Flynn spoke, the excitement of the crowd became a visible thing. She stood there with her Irish blue eyes, her face magnolia white, and her cloud of black hair, the picture of a youthful revolutionary girl leader. She stirred them lifted them up in her appeal for solidarity. Then at the end of the meeting, they sang. It was as though a spurt of flame had gone through the audience. Something stirring and powerful, a feeling which has made the liberation of people possible, something beautiful and strong, and swept through the people and welded them together. Seeing Flynn was responsible for fundraising and for support work outside of Lawrence. Flynn and Haywood organized special schools for children during this strike to offset the instructions they were getting in school, which was directed at driving a wedge between the school children and the striking parents. Some teachers called the strikers lazy, said they should go back to work or back where they came from. We attempted to counteract all this at our children's meetings, Flynn noted. The parents were pathetically grateful to us as their children began to show real respect for them and their struggles. Flynn also took charge of what came to be called the Lawrence Children's Crusade, probably the most publicized episode connected with the strike. From the beginning of the battle, the Italians considered sending their children to the homes of Italian Socialist Federation members in other cities. Both French and Italian unions had used this tactic many times in strikes in Europe, but it had rarely been employed in the United States. The majority of the strikers voted to support the Italian workers' proposal for the exodus. Plan arranged for the transportation. She placed children from four to 14 years of age in suitable homes provided by socialist women in New York and other cities, but turned down publicity seekers such as wealthy Mrs. O.A.P. Belmont for not having the interest of the strikers at heart. The exodus of the children eased the relief burden while it also attracted enormous sympathy for the strikers' cause. The pitiful emaciated condition of the children as they paraded inadequately clothed in the bitter winter weather down New York's Fifth Avenue stamped Lawrence as a city of starvation wages and aroused great resentment against the mill owners. Nevertheless, the anti-labor press attacked the children's crusade as inhuman practice, as a threat against the sanctity of the home. It must be stopped. The Boston American, a Hearst paper, demanded in an editorial. The mill owners did not like the publicity and determined to end the exodus. A statement issued by the chief of police proclaimed, There will be no more children leaving Lawrence until we are satisfied that the police cannot stop their going as the children were assembling at the Lawrence Railroad Station on February 24, the police sought to block them from boarding the cars that carried them to Philadelphia. A member of the Philadelphia Women's Committee testified under oath that policemen closed in on us with their clubs, beating right and left with no thought of the children, who then were in desperate danger of being trampled to death the mothers and the children were then hurled in a mass and bodily dragged to a military truck and even clubbed irrespective of cries of the panic-stricken mothers and children fifteen children and eight adults including pregnant mothers were arrested clubbed thrust into patrol wagons and taken to the police station petitions poured into congress demanding an investigation of the lawrence strike socialist congressman victor r berger urged quick action on a resolution he had previously introduced calling for an investigation of the strike. A congressional investigation was undertaken, along with one by the U.S. Commissioner of Labor. The strikers remained united behind their strike committee. After eight weeks without a break in the strikers' ranks, the mill owners began to negotiate with the strike committee. First, they offered a five percent increase in wages, then seven percent, then seven point five percent all were rejected. On March twelfth, the negotiating committee came back from their meeting with an offer of twenty five percent for the lowest paid workers. The premium system was not abolished, but all workers would now get time and a quarter for overtime, and the companies promised no discrimination against strikers. On March fourteenth, twenty thousand strikers voted unanimously to accept the offer and go back to work. They vowed to keep their organization intact, and concluded, as always, by singing the Internationale. The earth shall rise on new foundations. We have been not. We shall be all. The settlement was a great victory for the Lawrence workers and for the IWW. By the end of the strike, more than 10,000 Lawrence textile workers were members of the IWW, fully 60% of them women. More than 90% of these new members were Italians, Portuguese, Poles, Lithuanians, Syrians, French, and Belgians. Most of them had been in the United States for less than three years, and nearly all had been considered unorganizable because they were from Southern and Eastern Europe. The Lawrence strike gave these women a new sense of power. They were able to vote as equal with men in all the strike decisions. They assumed positions of authority and leadership by participating in all committees and speaking and picketing in public. They led the picket lines and faced arrest and jail. Even the police used force and violence against them. The determination and militancy of the women strikers were decisive in the final victory young girls had executive positions men and women have developed a social camaraderie almost larger every day for weeks people of every one of these nations have gone to their crowded meetings and listened to the speakers and have discussed these questions afterwards and in the morning the women have resumed their duty on the picket lines and the working together for what they believed was the common good Unfortunately, however, the gains for the workers of Lawrence were short-lived. After the trial and acquittal of Elton and Giovanni, which was accompanied by a good deal of mass agitation and a day of political strike, the main IWW organizers left town. The mill owners then initiated a two-year campaign of retaliation and union busting that had three prongs— God and country designed to divide those born in the United States from the foreign-born workers, massive blacklisting of activists, and a forced depression in the textile industry. The American Woolen Company, the largest in Lawrence, announced that it was moving south because it could not pay such high wages. By January 1915, there were 15,000 workers walking the streets of Lawrence looking for work as the local depression became a national disaster. The IWW, because it was primarily interested in unionizing during strikes, it failed to build a strong permanent union, and it left the workers without strong leadership. World War I had a huge impact on the labor movement, both good and bad, but also on working women. Most essential by-products was the recognition of the women worker as an essential factory worker in industry. Yet this recognition was slow in coming, and women did not immediately replace men to any great extent. Charles E. Knopold, the well-known industrial engineer, agreed. He insisted late in 1917, "'Industry is not yet ready for women. There is a great deal of unemployment among men, more than necessary.'" get the lounge lizards and loafers first even the government echoed these sentiments for several months after the declaration of war the department of labor maintained that no additional women workers were needed since there were sufficient men available plenty of work for the men department spokespeople emphasized Irving Bullard, pointed out that for every man in the trenches twenty workers were required to provide the supplies for carrying on the war he therefore insisted that women must immediately be recruited to fill the gaps created by the disappearance of male hands many employers were being forced to recruit women as not only conscription but also the sharp decline in european immigration dried up the available pools of male workers Female labor, which had previously been valuable as an industrial and commercial resource, now became a national necessity, especially after the second draft. As millions of men left for training camps and for duty overseas and the need for war materials reached staggering proportions, armament manufacturers had to rely increasingly on women workers. By 1918, over all clad factory women were toting shells, unloading freight, painting huge steel tanks, breaking up scrap iron, or wielding pickaxes. On the trains, they were handling luggage, repairing tracks, operating bridges, and even running the engines. In the cafes, they wore the uniform of elevator operators, streetcar conductors, and postmen. Girls and women who had never worked before and those who had previously worked in non-war trades were in aircraft ammunition plants, shipbuilding yards, and steel mills, operating lace, drill presses, milling machines, and other machines and hand tools. In addition, women continued as part of the labor force in the usual women employing industries, textiles, clothing, food, and others. Traditional reports have stressed that women workers during World War I were able, by their contribution to the war effort and the capability they displayed, to break down the barriers that had been previously kept out of many industry activities and lay the foundation for more specialized jobs, increased wages, better working conditions, and a more competitive status in the labor market in sum that they managed to change drastically the existing sex-segregated organizations of work and prejudice concerning women's appropriate work roles thus mary van cleek wrote that the industry not feminism opened the way for women to enter new areas of the work experience and that the war appears to have released the power of women industrial processes more effectively than all the preaching of economic independence during the past 50 years. And Teresa Wolfson commented, Women's sphere bade fair to become a thing of the past. The old line motherhood occupation gave way to jobs to be done by ideology as well as reality. The war, of course, brought with it a rapid expansion in the number of women engaged in these repetitive occupations as well as in general unskilled work, but an important new factor in the picture that the emergency created by the labor shortage cleared the way for women's access to the master machines and the key occupations in many industries in the iron steel and other metal industries for example it opened the machine shop and the tool rooms to them and introduced them even if only in limited numbers into the steel works and rolling mills moreover the war emergency forced the experiment of teaching women workers to read blueprints to adjust their machines to set up and measure and mark their own work and be responsible for its quality and quantity private and public training institutions of the country had trained only an insignificant number of women for these tasks. Plans that did get underway for training women either were inadequate or were not started early enough to produce many material results before the armistice. As hundreds of thousands of women entered industry during the war years, the previous hostility of men in their trades magnified and expanded. As we shall see, many men in Union shops also been in their displeasure by opposing women for union membership. Another aspect of this problem stemmed from the custom of changing clothes in the factory. It was considered wasteful to work in one's street clothes, so operatives changed to old, shabby clothes or to uniforms in factories that required them before starting to work. Women working on night shifts reported that men harassed them by shouting obscenities at them as they traveled to and from work at the philadelphia navy yard night shift the situation became so bad that police and navy yard orderlies had to escort women workers home many men feared that large numbers of women would lead in the short run to lowering of the existing wage and other labor standards in the long run to the discharge of men the men particularly resented what had come to be known in england as the sister susie menace sister susie was the type of woman worker described as possessed by the peculiarly infantile form of patriotism which prompts her to volunteer her services or underbid the self-supporting men and women Still, it was not primarily because of their patriotism that women entering the traditionally masculine pursuits rarely received the same pay as men for the same jobs. While some women felt the situation was warranted because men often did heavier work and supported families, many expressed justifiable anger over the discriminatory job classifications and wage differentials. Most women hired During the war, were classified as helpers, even when they performed the same work as men. Other war industries also reflected clear distinctions between men and women. Another government installation paid a minimum daily rate for women of $1.20 to $2.24, but for men it was $3.20, the same as the maximum daily rate for women. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.